You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Greetings and welcome to Domecast. I'm Don Vaughn here with Daniel Battaglia, Colin Campbell, and Will Doran. Welcome back, Will, who is a new father. Uh, Thank and- you. Yeah. If anyone hears any crying, I promise it's not me. <laughs> it's just the He's sound of. He's not about all- the election. <laughs> I was going to say it's all political reporters a few days off in the election. So we are really, depending on when you are listening to this, like just, you know, days, very few days, hours away from election day, which could turn into more than a day. Uh, and that's part of our topic uh, today. It's three things that will determine the North Carolina election. And really the the, the primary one that, that we've decided is COVID-19, because that has changed everything about this election year. Just, just what's important to people, how campaigns are, who you want to be in office, just, just a huge variety of things. Um, I'll start with, with a lot of what I've been covering from the COVID perspective, and that is incumbent Governor Cooper's weekly press conferences, which he has, uh, it's all remote, reporters call in on the phone, um, and uh, Cooper does it with DHHS Secretary Mandy Cohen, and it's been a way for Cooper's actions as governor to get out in front of the public in a way that uh, during a campaign year that has uh, benefited him clearly, and he hasn't been doing any of the in-person campaign things. And on the other side, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, a Republican running against him, is campaigning on not liking Cooper's restrictions, doing in-person events, um, not wanting to wear a mask, even though, of course, that's the CDC guidelines about controlling the spread of the virus. Um, so it's really just been two flip sides of response to coronavirus. So that's dominated the gubernatorial election. We've got all kinds of other stuff that's dominating. What do you guys think that the COVID factor in, in this election? It just makes it so much harder to figure out how things are going in terms of, uh, you know, early voting and absentee balloting, because, you know, we, we don't know what that's going to do to turnout. Um, we don't know which groups are more or less likely to turn out. I mean, you know, you've got the sort of dynamic of, I think Democrats are, are more cautious because they're taking the caution rhetoric from their leadership, whereas Republicans less so because you've got, you know, Dan Forrest and Donald Trump basically downplaying the, the risks of COVID, um, you've got different populations, you know, people with elderly or uh, with, with health conditions who are more at risk and therefore maybe more cautious in terms of what they're willing to do in terms of voting and, you know, just how much it affects people's lives and, and who they want to blame, if anyone, for the, the state of the world right now. I think you're also seeing a huge difference with the campaigning itself, like whether, you know, I've talked to some of the candidates saying I can go to more meetings because I am now digital, so I can be in every county I want in a matter of seconds. Um, But then you also have people who want to go out and get out and see their constituents and make sure their names are known and they don't have that face-to-face interaction that you normally do. So I think that's a huge component of what we're seeing this election and how not knowing how that's going to play into results. You basically can't go to a Democratic Party campaign event unless you're invited because they are really tight on the numbers and making sure there's social distancing. Whereas, you know, you're you're very much invited to come to one of the five weekly Trump rallies or any of the events that, that Dan Forrest is hosting as he travels the state. Um, so it's, it's sort of a, an odd dynamic. And, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of middle ground between let's pack a giant crowd together and let's do everything on Zoom. 
It's interesting how maybe they've raised money differently. And Colin, you just looked into, you know, their most recent filings and, you know, like maybe you would raise more money at some in-person event where everyone's, you know, there and you get a minute with the candidate versus if you're going to pay and just for some online thing. But maybe people are happier to do that and go to more of those. I don't I don't know. What, what are like the takeaways for that money? And do you think COVID has affected how people are giving? Um, I think it may have a little bit, um, and this may have been the trend either way um, in terms of uh, how the fundraising has gone. But if you look at the biggest donors for the Dan Forrest related um, political organizations and the NCGOP and the same for Cooper's, uh, much more of Cooper's money is coming from out-of-state groups like uh, a lot of the national democratic organizations. He gets a lot from the Eric Holder-led uh, redistricting group that's gone to the, the state party. Um, whereas Forrest, it's, um, it's been, his, his biggest have been in-state business types, uh, people like, uh, you know, Art Pope or uh, Bob Luddy, who are, you know, consistent uh, Republican donors in this state, whereas uh, the notable names in Cooper's filings uh, and some of the others uh, related to him were like the author John Grisham, who I'm pretty sure lives in Virginia, but has some North Carolina ties, Steven Spielberg, the Hollywood director, the former CEO of Google, the former CEO of Morgan Stanley. Um, and so those are the sort of people who are less likely to go to an in-person event unless, you know, Cooper's holding a fundraiser in, in New York City or California, um, whereas the sort of in-state business types are more likely to, you know, want to go to a reception with Dan Forrest in like Raleigh or Charlotte or something. It might be that they're going to give that money anyway, because I think Grisham has contributed before. I think he has an apartment in Chapel Hill. Yeah, um, a lot of these are the same num names we saw in the reports, even you know, before the primary. Yeah, so, so maybe COVID really hasn't affected that. But obviously, they need money to spend on campaigning when people aren't in public. So you, I don't know. Maybe they've actually been able to reach more people with the excessive ads and mailers than they would if we were all out and about and not at home watching as much television or, or scrolling, you know? Yeah, and certainly Cooper gets a lot more. I mean, he gets, you know, an, an hour, 30 minutes or however much airtime once a week when he does his press conferences. And of course, they're, you know, they're not overtly political, but certainly people are going to form their opinions of his leadership based on watching those and, and seeing how he handles uh, the crisis. Right. I do feel like his press conferences, and I know it's not intentional, but it's kind of like Sheree Berry putting her face all over the elevators in North Carolina. Like he's been out front on the COVID issue throughout the year. And so, you know, people who might not pay attention to him normally are definitely seeing him more this year. And I feel like that's got to benefit him some way. Yeah, maybe some people actually don't pay attention to who the governor is unless it affects them. And now it does. So that makes them either more interested and in, and in if they approve of how Cooper's handled it or if they disapprove. And so you might have people that are paying closer attention to that and all the down ballot races because this affects them in a way where maybe they don't really care about Medicaid expansion and teacher pay and and you know, corporate taxes or something, maybe that, that wouldn't have been a factor before. So there's a chance more people are voting in our state elections because of that. And then presidential is a, is a whole different, whole different factor, um, which what do you guys think about the COVID factor and how that can affect um, how North Carolina goes? Um, if, you know, their opinions on, on Trump versus Biden. Well, on, on that note, Don, I mean, you've seen Donald Trump and, you know, some of his campaign surrogates, whether it's Trump family members or Mike Pence, come to North Carolina, it feels like almost daily for the past couple of weeks. Um, and the Biden campaign has sent people here a little bit, but not nearly as much. And I think that's uh, 
maybe one, you know, factor that shows that North Carolina is more important to Trump than it is to Biden, you know, that, that Biden has other paths to victory that don't involve North Carolina, but Trump really needs to win North Carolina in order to, to get where he needs to get in the Electoral College. But it could also just be, you know, a factor of their different campaign styles with Biden kind of being a little more uh, you know, not willing to do big rallies because of coronavirus, uh, whereas Trump is more willing to just, you know, kind of throw all the coronavirus cautions mm. to the wind and come anyways. Um, so I, I think that's probably uh, helping Trump here that, you know, people see him that he is here constantly. You know, our, our uh, colleague Andrew Carter wrote a story recently um, after Trump went down to uh, Robson County and spoke with the Lumbee tribe. And, you know, he interviewed a lot of people, uh, you know, down there. It's kind of a traditionally kind of conservative Democrat area. You know, it looks Democratic on paper, but leans right. And they were saying, you know, that they're big fans of Trump. And a lot of them, you know, really respected him for coming to to visit the tribe, uh, you know, at this time, you know, when when minority groups like Native Americans are being more affected by COVID-19. So, uh, you know, it looks like, you know, that that could be giving Trump a boost here, the fact that he's willing to do more rallies than Biden is. All right. So COVID-19, obviously, like the the first and, and primary uh factor that's going to determine the election. And and Will mentioned the electoral votes can take us to our, our number two biggest thing that's going to determine the election, and that's voter turnout. North Carolina has 15 uh, electoral college votes. Uh, did a fun explainer on that if you guys want to know more about how that works here. The Secretary of State, uh, Lane Marshall, is in charge of, according to our statute, uh, to that ceremony, which actually isn't even until December. And those 15 votes are because every state gets two votes for their senators, and then the rest of the votes are not from the senators, but to represent those two, uh, the fact that we have two senators for every state. And then it's your number of House districts. So we have 13 in North Carolina, so that's why we have 15 electoral college votes. And that, that can be enough to swing an election, and that is why North Carolina is a battleground state, and the fact that we're a purple state, too. Um, which also makes voter turnout that much more important. And just because the tiniest percentage can can go either way, right? So, Will, you just wrote recently about um, younger voter turnout and what impact that could have. Yeah, we've got this really interesting phenomenon here in North Carolina, uh, kind of backed up by this, this Elon University poll that just came out um, on Thursday morning um, that found that young people are much more skeptical of just the electoral process as a whole than all other voters. And this is, you know, voters in their teens and basically early to mid twenties. Um, they're much more likely to think that, uh, you know, not all votes are going to get counted. Maybe something is going to get, you know, screwed around with, with the mail-in vote. They're much more likely to be concerned about voter intimidation at the polling process. They're mo much more likely to be concerned about foreign interference by shady governments trying to change the vote. Um, but at the same time, you also see all of these stats that show that youth voter turnout, despite being more skeptical and maybe a little disillusioned, is up. Um, and so I talked to some people and said, you know, actually, those two things do make sense. Even though they might seem contradictory. It's, you know, that young people don't like our political system and don't think that, you know, they're necessarily fairly represented in it. So they want to get out and make some change. Um, so... Do you think some, or go ahead. I was just going to say, so, you know, according to, you know, 
And, and, and like you and I think also Colin were saying earlier, Don, it's a little hard to tell with turnout levels right now how much of it is legitimately greater enthusiasm than before for all of this increase in early voting versus how much of it is just people shifting their votes earlier in the cycle because of coronavirus concerns, whether that's voting by mail or, you know, getting out and doing early voting instead of voting on election day. You know, so it, but even though it is a little hard to tell, it does look like the youth voter turnout is up along with just voter turnout in general. Well, there was a misleading uh, infographic going around Twitter about a week ago that was highlighting like an eightfold increase in early voting turnout among 18 to 25 or something like that in North Carolina. But if you dug into the data, it turned out that they were capturing only one day of early voting in the 2016 total and like five days in the 2020 because early voting started earlier this year. And so there was more days before late October. Um, so don't believe everything you see on a, you know, hotly, uh, smartly produced uh, Twitter infographic. So voter turnout is the second big thing that will determine the election. And then third will be those actual counting of the ballots. Uh, not as much on the machines, although there's certainly been issues with that in the past. But the mail-in ballots, which has been a lot of fun uh, controversy lately and going all the way up to the Supreme Court. Danielle, why don't you tell people what, uh, what the situation is there and what impact that could have after Election Day? It has not been fun if you're following this. <laughs> I think anyone involved finds it not fun. But um, basically, we, we've we been following three lawsuits through both the federal and state court system. And we finally have reached an agreement. The long short of the story is that there was a settlement agreement accepted in Wake County um, Superior Court that would do one of three things that basically had to deal with the witness signature, where absentee ballots could be left, and... Um, what date would be the last day they would accept absentee ballots if they were postmarked by election day. And that last topic is really where everything fell. Um, the other two topics ended up getting settled basically by reverting back to North Carolina rules. So we've been waiting for the U.S. Supreme Court to decide this week on whether we would have the cutoff date for absentee ballots be November 6th or November 12th. And they finally came out this week saying it will be November 12th. Your absentee ballot has to be to either the Postal Service um, anytime Election Day or to the county boards by 5 p.m. on Election Day. And then as long as it makes it through the mail system by the 12th, your ballot will be counted. I think it's 5 p.m. on the 12th. It will be counted. Yeah, so we've got a little more time than, than some other states do for ballots to be late arriving and still be counted, um, which, you know, just also just goes to this whole thing of, you know, it could be a couple of weeks or a month until we <laughs> figure out who won, you know, close races. Um, you know, it looks like there might not actually be all that many ballots outstanding. And North Carolina, and I assume every other state in the country, is going to know how, like, you know, the largest possible number of potential votes still out in the mail. So, you know, you can see, okay, well, you know, this candidate won the race by like 15 percentage points. And, you know, so there's no possible way, like, you know, the, the outstanding mail-in ballots could change anything. But for close races, you know, like we had here in 2016, you know, people might need to be prepared to, to wait a while. Yeah, I think comparing North, yeah, comparing North Carolina and other states, um, as I'm understanding it, some other states don't necessarily start the process of processing and counting the absentee ballots that have already arrived until 
after election day. North Carolina tends to do most of that. So I think you'll get to election night and you'll have the vast overwhelming majority of votes will be counted on election night. It'll just be a matter of, yeah, if, if a race is really close and, you know, a couple thousand votes separate the two candidates and something, um, and there's a couple thousand absentee ballots still kicking around in that particular district, you could see something that dragged on for, you know, a week, two weeks, maybe more um, as absentee ballots get challenged. So anyone who wants a, a quick result to the election just has to hope that nothing is quite that close and that whatever happens after election day doesn't have that big of an impact on the final numbers. Well, naturally, we could end up being irrelevant. You know, if they like if it doesn't whatever our electoral votes don't don't factor in, depending on how the other states go. So there may not be a need there. You know, I don't think. But uh, yeah, those close races. And I mean, our last gubernatorial election was was close. And so maybe some of the legislative races or council of state even. I, I don't know. Yeah, I think, you know, the the governor's race, the polling seems to indicate that Cooper's got a pretty big lead. So if that holds, you know, we will that'll get decided election night. But the oh, yeah. U.S. Senate race is very close. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a lot of uh, likely to be close legislative races. And if those end up being pivotal into who has control of the House or Senate, um, then I think that could very easily drag on because um, you've already got legislative leaders that are willing to sue over the absentee ballot process. And certainly if uh, if it affects their majority, um, there may be further litigation uh, after election day. All right. So the third big thing is the actual counting of those ballots and the mail and uh, the mail and ballots, and that can affect a whole slew of races. Um, and again, election day might be November third, but election week, election month, um, we don't know. Uh, so. Next up, we've got uh, headliner of the week. Uh, Will looks like he had a technical problem and dropped out, but good thing he already told us who his headliner was. Um, Colin, who who won last time? Actually, well, last our last one, our last dome cast, other than the um, special edition legislative ones that Lucille Sherman has been doing, uh, was the hour-long audio of a panel we did about disinformation. But Colin and I were there at the beginning for about a minute to give a, a quick headliner. So uh, what one, Colin? Do you have that? It uh, looks like uh, the crush of campaign ads beat uh, Mark Robinson 60% to 40%. So that's uh, it's your victory, Don. Uh, fell short on that this week. All right. So Will uh, told us what his headliner will be for this uh, for this week. And he said unaffiliated voters who we hadn't really talked about, but fits in with all those, you know, three big things that will determine the election, especially a voter turnout is how did they actually vote? Because they don't tell us what party they're aligned with. So we don't know. We'll find out. So that's Will's headliner. Um, what's uh, Well, I come up with one really quick. Uh, what are y'all's? I'm going to go with uh, the third party effect. Uh, I wrote about this a little bit this week. We haven't heard a whole lot about um, the third party candidates in the the major races in North Carolina this year, but this is the first time in a uh, major year election that we've had not only the libertarian candidates, but also the ability to have uh, Constitution Party and Green Party candidates on the ballot. And uh, generally the dynamic and the reason that, you know, you have laws that allow for both the Constitution Party and the Green Party is that the Democrats would prefer that the Green Party not have access to the ballot because they tend to pull liberal voters away from the Democrats. The Constitution Party has largely the same effect on the right, uh, pulling from the Republican voters. So what's fascinating to me is in the U.S. Senate race, uh, you don't have a Green Party candidate, but you do have a Libertarian and a Constitution Party candidate. And if that ends up being really close, um, then that could spell doom for Tom Tillis if he 
has a even if it's just a one percent uh, of votes that would have normally gone to Tillis going to Kevin Hayes, the Constitution Party candidate, or Shannon Bray, the Libertarian Party candidate, um, could make up the difference and uh, you know be pretty bad for Tillis. So I think that's one to watch on election night um, if that race does end up being close. So mine would be uh, North Carolina being the popular place to be for <laughs> Trump and Pence and Biden and Harris, and they care so much about us right now, and pretty soon they won't care about us at all until the next election. So my headliner is going to be North Carolina's popularity that is fleeting. <laughs> no one will love us anymore after Tuesday. That was depressing. <laughs> um, I'm going with the obvious one that I can't believe y'all didn't pick, but the election results, because I feel like that's what everybody wants to know this week is who's going to win each race. So I'm going with election results. Can't we just start hitting refresh on the Board of Elections website every five seconds uh, for many, many hours Tuesday night? The fun of the refresh button. An election night will be way more virtual <laughs> than it has been in the past, other than that refresh, which we still do. Uh, we'll all be eating our solitary pizza in our houses instead of, you know, screaming at each other in the newsroom <laughs> as deadlines approach. All right. Well, it's going to be uh, a crazy next few days, hours. And when you hear from us again, uh, yeah, who knows? Who knows what we'll be talking about? Similar topics, but with different, uh, different turnout. So I'm Don Vaughn for Danielle Battaglia, Will Doran, and Colin Campbell. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News & Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.